Happy New Year to you guys. Um, glad to be here teaching the Word. This is, I always tell people the most exhilarating thing that I ever do in my life is teaching the Word of God. So glad to be doing it again this morning and want to welcome you if you're new, if you're here in person or if you're online. We're glad that you're here. Uh, the new calendar year switching over, um, it, it's kind of a good time to start new patterns in any area of our life. And so we're starting this sermon series this morning. Uh, we're calling it Mastering the Restart. It'll be for three weeks. And you've probably heard Mark say that phrase um, on stage before. And there's a good bet that that phrase actually came from his dad, right? Because not much of what Mark says up here is its own, right? It's usually his dad's, right? Um, but that phrase, Mastering the Restart, is so appropriate for the Christian life, right? Because um, I, think, I think really two reasons, too. One, no follower of Christ is perfect, right? We all experience kind of these seasons maybe of spiritual dryness every now and then. Um, maybe times in our life where we experience these lapses in some of the practices, such as reading the Bible, prayer, that go into following Jesus. We don't do those perfectly all the time. We always kind of need a fresh restart, right? So th that's the first thing. But the second thing is, guys, this idea of mastering the restart, it's perfectly in line with God's character, right? I mean, he's a God of grace. So we, we don't just get one, two, three strikes and you're out with God. Uh, we, we get as many do-overs as we want with God. So restarting these habits that kind of go into following Jesus, um, it, it's right in line with who God is. He, he's going to give us grace upon grace upon grace. But in spite of those two reasons, that title, Mastering the Restart, it still begs the question, what exactly are we mastering the restart in? And, and I think you could sort of consider the big idea for this series this, that we're mastering the restart in abiding in Jesus Christ. That's going to kind of govern this week, next week, and the week after, and really the rest of your life. So we're mastering the restart in abiding in Jesus. Well, what does it mean to abide in Jesus? Jesus gives a big chunk of John 15 to this, if you want to look at this more in depth, but for our purposes this morning, let's just define it like this. Abiding in Jesus means that you're going to organize your entire life around one thing, being with Jesus, okay? Abiding in Jesus means that you're going to organize your entire life around one thing, and that is being with Jesus. So you sort of have this constant attachment to Jesus. The, the, the lines of communication between you and Jesus, are, they're never cut off. Right? They're never closed. Right? You, kinda, you bring Jesus into every role that you play. Mother, father, husband, wife, son, daughter, student, employee, whatever it is. You bring Jesus into all of those roles, all the big decisions you make in those roles. There's sort of no part of your life that Jesus is not deeply and intimately involved in. You're constantly turning your mind to Jesus, no matter what you're doing in life. So, before we get to the actual practices of Jesus, God's word and prayer, in the next couple weeks, we're going to sort of back up the train this morning and dive into this idea of self-forgetfulness. And our goal in doing this is to kind of retune or reorient our hearts, to kind of switch the focus from ourselves to Jesus. And if we do this, not only are we going to be more successful in abiding in Jesus, but guys, our experience in the spiritual disciplines, or what I prefer to call the practices of Jesus, it's going to be all the more fruitful. It's going to be all the more fruitful. So we're going to answer three questions 
in our study of self-forgetfulness. Number one, why does self-forgetfulness even matter? That's the first question we have to answer, okay? Why does it even matter? We'll dig deep into our souls there. Second, what's the distinguishing mark of a life of self-forgetfulness? And we'll get into Matthew 6 to answer that one. And then last, how do we cultivate it, right? We can't just be hearers of the word. We need to be doers of the word. So how do we cultivate this idea of self-forgetfulness and put it into practice? So first question, why does self-forgetfulness even matter? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to start with one of the most basic desires of every human heart. doesn't matter who you are. Every single human being desires at least one thing out of life, and that's happiness, right? We want the richest, most fulfilling, most meaningful life possible. Um, We're not wrong in wanting that either. God puts that desire in our hearts. In fact, Jesus talks about this a lot. Uh, I just want to give you a couple to think about. Matthew 16, 25, he says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for me will find it. You want to find that fulfilling life, that happy life? Turn your heart to me. Matthew 5, the the Beatitudes that kind of lead off the Sermon on the Mount. Every one of them starts out with this phrase, blessed are you, right? And some of you know that that word blessed can be translated happy. So Jesus is saying, you want the happy life? Let, Let me teach you how. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are those who are merciful. Right? John 15, the chapter that we just referenced, Jesus, he goes into depth for several paragraphs about what it means to abide in him. And at the end of those, he gives kind of this summary statement of what he's just said. He says, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And then probably my favorite one is John 10.10. Jesus tells us that he's the good shepherd And he says, here's why I've come. I've come so that my sheep may have life and have it in abundance. The message says, I came so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. So Jesus is all about our happiness. But how do we most often measure that abundant life that Jesus offers us? I think if we're honest and if we do some soul searching, it's by being able to answer yes to one question. Do I matter? Do I matter? Am I somebody? Do I have some value or some worth? If I can answer yes to that question, if I can know with certainty that I have self-worth, if I have the approval of somebody, well, then I can know that I matter. Then I can be happy. And You know, from a worldly perspective, it sort of makes sense that the best way to sort of affirm my self-worth is to focus on myself. From a worldly perspective, that makes sense. If I want to affirm my self-worth, well, focus on me, right? So we we tend to make our life kind of this never-ending quest to fulfill this desire for self-worth, to prove that we matter. And that quest typically centers on building our identity somewhere outside of God right? Most often it's the approval of others, right? If I can just get enough people, or if I can just get the right people to say that I matter, well, then I can be happy. And the life, in essence, is about getting attention on me, whatever way possible. How can I get people to focus on me? And we have to understand, guys, that's the natural starting point of every single human being when they enter this earth. 
And many of us struggle with that deeply even after we put our faith in Jesus Christ. So why do we focus on ourselves? Well, we think it's the path to our happiness. You know, one of the greatest struggles of my life has been going after the approval of other people, particularly men in positions of authority. And I would go to great measures, guys, and still struggle with this, um, to prove that I'm perfect, if that is even attainable, as a son, as a father, as a husband, as a pastor, as a student, you, you name it, whatever role, um, if I can just get those guys to affirm my worth, to just approve of me in those roles, then I'm going to know that I'm somebody. And guys, constantly chasing after the approval of others, it changes you. You know, you know your actions become insincere. Your words become lies. I've shared before that I've, I cheated in seminary because I was trying to get the approval of that guy right there, Jeff Dodge. Everything about you, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, who you're in relationship with, it, it's all about getting the favor of other people. And can I just tell you that that's been absolutely paralyzing at times. Let me just give you just a short list of what that has yielded in my life. Consumed by guilt, condemnation, emptiness, low self-worth, depression, pain, fragile emotions, insecurity. Now that doesn't sound like a very abundant life, right? Now, don't get me wrong, guys. God has redeemed me, and he has poured so much of his grace into my life. And my life is it's overflowing with joy. But in those seasons or in those times, when your life centers around focusing on yourself, that's the fruit that that bears. Now, contrast that with a life that Jesus offers us. Let me give you another short list. Unconditional love and approval, fullness of joy, deep meaning and fulfillment, security, and extreme self-worth. Let's take that again. Unconditional love and approval, fullness of joy, deep meaning and fulfillment, security, and extreme self-worth. I hope you're asking yourself at this point, how do I get my hands on that life? Right? How can I get that life? So to answer our original question, why does self-forgetfulness matter? Because it is the path to happiness, guys. Only self-forgetfulness is going to turn our hearts from ourselves to the source of life himself, Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So that's our first question. Let's look at our second question. What's the distinguishing mark of the life of self-forgetfulness? Let's open your Bible to Matthew 6. Hopefully we have your attention now. Let's dig into the word here and color this in even more. Jesus in Matthew 6, he's going to show us two different paths that we can try and take to get this full life, this abundant life that he promises. Okay? We're going to kind of map those out together and kind of compare them and contrast them a little bit. So Matthew 6, we're just going to take verse 1 to start. He's going to give us a general principle in verse 1. So look at Matthew 6, verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. Okay? So I want you to see three very important things from this verse. He starts out, be careful. Right? So, in other words, 
your ear should perk up a little bit. I'm about to tell you something very important. First thing is this. He talks about practicing our righteousness. What does he mean by that? Well, he just means your good deeds or your good works. But the application of this principle that we'll get to in just a minute here, it's not limited to just religious duties. That's what he's going to focus on here. He's going to focus on giving, like they call it almsgiving, giving to the poor, prayer and fasting. Uh, But Jesus uses this as a subject because even more than kind of our entire character or our entire life, what platform do Christians most often use to draw attention to themselves? Well, it's religious duties. It's those good works, right? And so that's why Jesus chooses to focus on those here to kind of you know, create this false picture of how good or important we are, right? To get that declaration that I matter. So righteousness is good deeds, but again, this principle applies to all of life. Second thing, he's gonna get at the motive of our actions here, when he says, in front of others, to be seen by them. So he's getting at our motive, and he's saying, listen, your motive is determined by what you're trying to get from your actions. Okay? What do you expect from your actions? Is it to be seen by others? Well, that tells me an awful lot about your motive, Jesus is saying. He's talking about, he'll call them the hypocrites, largely he's talking about Pharisees here. Their motive It's to be seen by others. It's to draw attention to themselves. Okay, and then the third thing, he ends with this. You have no reward with your Father in heaven. In other words, if this is your motive, you'll get a reward, but it's not going to be from God. Okay, it's not going to be from God. So what's the general principle here? Let's bottom shelf this. Don't do things to draw attention to yourself. It's as simple as that. He's telling us, don't do things to draw attention to yourself. And why is he telling us that? Because he wants to teach us how to be free from control of the opinions of others. Okay? This harkens back to why self-forgetfulness matters, right? Our first question. And guys, this applies to all of life, not just the religious stuff. It's even later on in Matthew, uh, chapter 23, verse 5, he's talking about the Pharisees again. And he says, oh, actually, they do everything to be seen by others. It's not just the religious stuff. They do everything to be seen by others. Okay? So this is a principle. It applies to all of our life, not just the quote-unquote spiritual stuff that we do. So let's turn to the three examples, three illustrations Jesus uses to to kind of draw out this principle. We're going to skip over some verses, but go to verse 2. He's going to deal with almsgiving or giving to the poor. So he says, Whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, next he's going to go to prayer. Let's go to verse 5. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, that's the second illustration. Third, he goes to fasting. Go to verse 16. Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil in your head and wash your face 
so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, so you notice in all three of those illustrations, we get this short phrase, but you. So Jesus is contrasting two different groups of people, or better yet, he's, like we said earlier, he's contrasting two different paths that we can take to this happy life. Okay, and we're going to kind of map those out together. We'll have it on the screen for you. It's important to know that um, both of these paths start at the same exact point, okay? Both groups of people that we'll get into, they have the same intended result. They're both after the fullest, most fulfilling, most meaningful life, happiest life that they can get, okay? That's the goal for both of these. So now let's look at the two types of people. You notice he talks about hypocrites in all three illustrations, right? And some of you guys know that this is a theater term, right? It's used of actors. What do actors do? They get on stage to perform. Uh, They're not meant to, in their performance, especially in the theater, convey um, a picture of reality or truth. Their performance isn't meant to be sincere, right? They're playing a fictional part. And Jesus is saying, well, yeah, same thing with those Pharisees, with those hypocrites. Their religious performance, it didn't contain a shred of sincere devotion to God. It was all about themselves, all about getting the attention on themselves. This word hypocrites, it conveys the idea of of having two faces as well. It's where we get the phrase, oh, he or she is two-faced. Actors often wore a mask. So they would have one face on stage when they were performing to the crowd. And then, of course, when they went back to real life, they would take that mask off and they had a different face. And Jesus is kind of conveying the same thing here. These hypocrites, these Pharisees, they put on one face to the world in a totally different one toward God. Two different people. Who does he contrast that with? Well, when he says, but you, he's talking about genuine disciples, right? Genuine followers of Jesus Christ, whereas the hypocrite has two faces, the disciple has one. It's one of sincere devotion to God, a genuine desire to put the attention on God. Okay? So, starting out on these paths, we've got the hypocrites, we've got the disciples, both are after the same thing. Next, Jesus gets into the motive. Right? Hypocrite, what's their motive? It's to get the attention on themselves. Right? Verse 2, we see to be applauded by people. Verse 5, to be seen by people. Verse 16, so that their fasting is obvious to people. The disciple, on the other hand, they want to get the attention on God. They're living for an audience of one. They don't care who's present when they're doing this stuff. There's no public display to impress others. Okay? Hypocrites out to get attention on themselves. Disciples out to get attention on God. Jesus next, he gets into the method, right? Let's look at the hypocrite here. I'm going to call this a pretentious performance. That's their method. Okay? It's a pretentious performance. They want to convince others that they're more important, uh, they're more pious, they're more holy than they actually are. Jesus says they sound their trumpets, they stand on the street corners. The fasting one is interesting. Uh, They wouldn't bathe sometimes or comb their hair. Sometimes they'd put ashes on their head, even makeup on their faces. And just in general have this kind of uh, sullen, downtrodden, miserable look on their face as if to say, look at me, woe is me, I'm suffering because I'm fasting, right? Right? 
The only intention is to get the attention on themselves. So a hypocrite, pretentious performance. The disciple, do you notice what this was? Remember we've said before, if you've seen a word repeated a number of times in the same passage, take note of it. Secrecy. We see that word an awful lot in this set of verses. The method of the disciple is secrecy. The disciple knows that their good deeds, they don't need to be seen by others to be known. In fact, they know that anything that might affirm their self-worth doesn't need to be seen by others to be known. The only one whose opinion matters is God, and he sees all, and the disciple knows that. And it's interesting that the method, it points back to the motive. Jesus certainly is not saying that it's inherently wrong for people to see your good works. I mean, just a chapter ago, he said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Go, let people see your good works. But what's the purpose? So that they may glorify your Father in heaven. Not in order to be seen by others. But we can't mistake Jesus' frequent use of this principle of secrecy here. Okay, so what's the actual result? That's the only thing left we need now. We've got the hypocrite. They're out to get attention on themselves through a pretentious display. And we've got the disciple. They put the attention on God through the practice of secrecy. Both of them, remember, guys, what was the intended result? They wanted that abundant life. Well, what did they get? Well, with the hypocrite, their reward is what little praise from people they actually got. Jesus says, truly, truly, I tell you, they have their reward. Maybe one of the saddest statements in the entire Bible. It, this, guys, this conveys the idea that they received exactly what they owed, they were given a receipt for it, and the transaction is over. Don't expect anything else. They sought the praise of people, they got the praise of people. Dallas Willard says it like this. He says, what they wanted, they got. The ego is bloated, and the soul shrivels. I mean, that just gave me shivers right up my spine. The ego is bloated and the soul shrivels. The actual result, they got the empty life. They were after the full life, they got the empty life. And the ironic thing is, guys, usually hypocrites deceive other people. They're the deceived ones here. They thought they were going to get this full, abundant life, this declaration, you, you matter, you have self-worth and they're left still searching for it. The disciple, on the other hand, well, Jesus says they get a reward from their heavenly Father, right? And it's not even one that they earn. It's important to remember the disciples' motive here. The disciples' relationship with God, it's not transactional like it was with the Pharisees. It wasn't, you got what you owed, here's your receipt, see you later. The disciple never approaches God with this mindset of, okay, I'm going to do this, and then I will earn this. We never have a transactional relationship with God. A true disciple knows that when you respond to God's love, right? God loved us first. When you respond to God's love with devotion and faith and worship, I mean, the natural kind of overflow of that kind of relationship is the approval of God. That's just the natural outcome of it. 
It's not something that we've earned through a transaction. Guys, if you have the loving approval of the creator of the universe, you matter. You matter. So the actual result for the disciple, they got the full life. They got what they were after. And isn't it amazing that our happiness, it's not in contradiction with God's glory. It's not in contradiction with putting all of the attention on God. That is so beautiful. So what's the distinguishing mark of a life of self-forgetfulness? It's secrecy. Jesus is very clear about that. It's secrecy. The self-forgetful follower of Jesus, they're so absorbed with God that they're only interested in in impressing him. Now, you're free of the control of the opinions of others. When you're not worried about impressing them, you don't care what they think about you. You get to stop performing for everybody in your life, always making sure people only see the good side of you, right? Making sure they actually see a distorted picture of who you really are, one that sort of inflates the good and and minimizes or justifies the bad. You get to stop competing with and comparing yourself with others. You stop defending yourself in the face of every little thing that could be a blemish on your perfect image. And you don't connect the good things about you or the bad things about you with your self-worth. Because guys, living that kind of life, that's exhausting. That's exhausting. The distinguishing mark of the life of self-forgetfulness is secrecy. It's secrecy. So how do we cultivate self-forgetfulness? Let's, let's look at our last question here. There's a lot that could be said about this. Um, I, I want to keep it simple. I want to focus on two things and maybe add a little bit more flesh to those two things than we normally would for application. The first one, you may have guessed it, you practice secrecy. That's how we cultivate self-forgetfulness. And, and guys, this helps you break the grip of human opinion on your life. It, and it really tames that hunger for the attention of others, and that hunger to constantly justify yourself, right? Oh, oh, you thought you saw saw something bad about me. No, 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 let me explain, let me explain. I'm perfect, let me defend myself. There are no chinks in my armor. You get to stop, do that. Let's bottom shelf this. Practicing secrecy, what does it come down to? Stop performing for others, stop comparing yourself to others, and stop defending yourself. Stop performing for others, stop comparing yourself to others, and stop defending yourself before others. I've struggled with this mightily, and God has been so good to transform me in so many ways regarding this stuff. A couple weeks ago, I had a a ministry obligation that not only I, I should have been at, being an elder and a pastor of this church, but I knew I wanted to be at it. I uh, didn't know when it was, thought a, a staff member was going to tell me what it was, come to find out that I missed it several days later. And as soon as I found out that I missed it, I was just, guys, consumed by self-condemnation. And the only thing that I could think about was, how am I going to mount my defense before the elders Monday, Monday morning at elder meeting? How am I going to tell Jeff and Mark why I missed this? I mean, are they, are they kind of crafting a plan to fire me right now? Just consumed with this, and I'm sitting in the elder meeting, not saying a word because I'm so consumed by the guilt and the condemnation, and one of those times when you just hear this small voice of God, and just felt God said this, 
Brian, there's no need to defend yourself. You don't have to say anything right now. Uh, Jesus Christ already went on trial for you, and he defended you. You got the innocent verdict, okay? So this need to constantly defend your actions and your motives and your words and why you did or didn't do something, that's over. I know your heart. I'm the only one that you have to be accountable to. Guys, can I tell you how much freedom there was in that? And come to find out later, guys, that Mark and Jeff didn't even think twice about it. I mean, I was consumed with so much guilt for no reason. And man, when you just practice that life of secrecy, there's just so much freedom to be found in it. You stop connecting every single conversation with yourself. Stop connecting every single experience with yourself. The weight comes off your shoulders. Some of the most important things about you guys are the things that people will never know about or never hear about. The times when you don't justify yourself to protect a perfect reputation. The times when you don't lie or embellish the truth to impress others. The times when you don't post only the perfect picture life on Instagram. When you know that you're broken and you're hurt and there's pain in your soul and there's flaws. It's the times when you don't compare yourself with that perfect mom or that perfect dad in your life. And guys, that's where your soul is shaped in those moments of secrecy. That's what Jesus is telling us in this passage. And guys, let me just tell you, I'm gonna, here's one that I'm gonna commit to this year. If you asked our staff, this time for transparency, Mikey's gonna love this over there. You'll probably hear him giggling. If you asked our staff what I talk about the most, you know what they would tell you? How hard I work. How long of hours I work how I'm the hardest work around here, how much I always have to do. The only reason I do that, guys, is to justify my self-worth. It's the only reason. So that's one way I'm going to commit to secrecy this year. I'm not going to talk about that this year. And I would challenge you to, to reflect on that, think about that yourselves. Second thing, guys, relive the gospel. Relive the gospel. Remember what we're after here. We want that affirmative answer to the question, do I matter? Because if I get that, we'll have the full life. So realize what you're looking for. I've used this language earlier, but we're looking for a verdict, right? Kind of the, the trial is still out. Do we have self-worth or don't we? We're looking for that verdict. So we often kind of live our lives uncertain of our own self-worth. And what do we do? We put ourselves on trial every day. Some days it seems, well, People are generally impressed with me today. So our perceived self-worth is pretty high. Other days, man, people didn't seem very impressed with me. And so our perceived self-worth is low. And so wherever other people's opinions of us go, that's where our self-worth goes. That's where happiness goes. Now guys, thank God the gospel doesn't work that way. Right? Instead of having to perform in order to get this verdict that we want, the gospel is the only thing in the world that's going to give us the verdict before the performance. Colossians 2, 
13 and 14. When you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Okay, so that's the only performance we had, okay, was sin. When you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made us alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses, past, present, and future, okay? He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations. That's the verdict. We're innocent before we've even performed anything and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Guys, the trial is over. Jesus went on trial for you. He secured the verdict for you. And the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, innocent, innocent. And if the God of the universe declares you innocent, you know that he approves of you. And you have a self-worth that you can't possibly measure. Now, we need to remind ourselves of this every day, guys. One of the ways I do this is I pray through five resolutions every day. And one of them goes like this. Father, I resolve to relate with you based on grace alone. Help me to do that today. Help me to do that today. It's the most important question you can ask yourself. Am I relating with God based on grace alone? That is the most important question you can ask yourself, whether or not you're a Christian. And guys, any time throughout the day that I sense my heart either falling into self-condemnation because of the failures and the mistakes, or getting puffed up because of my accomplishments, I go back to that resolution. And here's what I say. Brian, God absolutely delights in you. And and you know what? Your sins today, they're worse than you think they are. And your accomplishments, God's not impressed by them. But you have the loving approval of your heavenly Father. And he doesn't love you because you do succeed or you don't fail. He just loves you. That's reliving the gospel. And guys, the result of doing that, you don't do things to try and fill this emptiness in your life. Everything you do, uh, it's for the pure joy of it. Everything you do, including Bible reading, which we'll get to next week, prayer the week after, these things that we, at sometimes we kind of come to despise because we call them disciplines. Even those things, you do out of just the, this deep, intimate knowledge um, that you have the loving approval and you have the presence of your heavenly Father. There's just this ever-present awareness of that. And so everything you do, it just comes out of receiving God's love over and over and over again. And you're never trying to fill an emptiness. Now it's just all joy. Guys, that is the full life. Okay, that is the full life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are undoubtedly areas of our life that we don't see right now. Um that we put the focus on ourselves. 
that we don't practice self-forgetfulness. And I pray that you would work in each one of the souls in this room and online today, God. Help us to self-reflect. Help us to search our souls, God. And would you search our souls for us, God, and just reveal to us those ways that we're going after this verdict that I matter somewhere outside of you. And God, help us believe that actually turning the attention off of ourselves is the way that we're going to get that verdict that we matter. It's the way that we're going to get to that abundant, full, rich, happy life, God. Help us to practice this discipline of secrecy, God. It takes faith to do that. Help us have the faith to do that. And God, give us the absolute pleasure of reliving that gospel every day. Give us hearts that are humble enough to not just look in the face of our sin and say, yeah, our sin is horrible, but to look at the backdrop of that and, and, and have the humility to say, yeah, God, I receive your love. I receive your forgiveness. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.